0: Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.
1: Divine love, heal our wounds, renew our minds, and animate our lives by your everlasting love. Amen. And please be seated. This morning, I'm going to wrap up our sermon series on our church's rhythms. Our rhythms describe what it is that we are doing as a church, which is cultivating a sacred story and a common table that animate life by divine love. So far, we've covered the cultivation of a sacred story, the cultivation of a common table. This morning, we'll consider the animation of love. And I'll begin with a few personal stories. I grew up in the church. I was three, four, maybe five years old, and I went to my weekly Sunday school class. I had a teacher, Miss Bonner, Mrs. Bonner, who I loved so much. She was like Mrs. Claus, white hair, warm smile. Uh, She would often bake cookies that we would get to eat if we behaved, and she was just a glorious teacher. One Sunday morning, I went into class, and there was the flannel graph. Raise your hand if you know what a flannel graph is. Okay, if you don't know what a flannel graph is, that's maybe good for you. Uh, flannel graph is like a board with flannel on it, and you could stick things to it. And, and the Sunday school teachers would use the flannel graph to tell stories. And there were little boys and little girls that were often in the stories, and there were mountains and skies and clouds and sheeps and Jesus. There was always Jesus. So there, there were these stories that would be told. Well, this one Sunday I went walking in, and, and Mrs. Bonner was... Uh, not as warm as usual. She seemed a little reserved. She almost seemed kind of uncomfortable. And on the flannel graph were flames. And above the flames were all of the children that I'd learned to love over the past years of my life coming to, to church. And, and the kids were in the flames. And Mrs. Bonner told us that if we didn't believe in Jesus as the Savior of our lives, who forgives us of all of our sins, then we, like these children, might descend into the flames of God. I went home that night, I couldn't sleep. My parents came into my room, asked me what was wrong. I told them I was afraid, terribly afraid of going to hell. They smiled. I prayed the sinner's prayer and I was saved. I was about nine or 10 and I was wearing a red tank top. I loved this tank top. It had like a swirly galaxy on it. I felt kind of strong. I was starting to get muscles. I felt really good. Our family was packing up to go to the beach, and I was being ornery. I was causing all kinds of trouble. I was rousing my siblings and causing them to get upset. And my dad was upset, and my mom was upset, and everyone was upset. And I remember my sister was carrying some stuff out to the van, and I said something, and she dropped the stuff. And my mom just snapped. And she said, Mike, you think you're so cool in that little tank top with your white, muscular arms? Well, you're not. And I felt so much shame, you know, because I actually thought I looked pretty good. (laughs) And I was just starting to get kind of excited about my body changing. And that moment was profound for me. Uh, Growing up, I had a lot of siblings, two brothers, six sisters. And so for my mom, uh, school was really important because it gave her a break. So it didn't really matter what we were doing or how we were feeling as my mom would say unless there's blood you're going to school and so I'd go to school I'd go to school with strep throat I'd go to school with colds I'd just go to school and every year at the end of the year throughout grade school there was that ceremony at the end of the year where you'd get certificates for certain things and I got every single year perfect attendance Early on, I really loved it. I couldn't believe that like, just me and one or two other kids could manage getting perfect attendance. I was so capable, you know? like Just ignoring my body and how I was feeling and all of my sickness and the tears as I was leaving the house, I could do hard things. I learned a lot about duty. As I moved into high school and uh, biblical studies in college, I started to learn a lot about sacrifice. Jesus is all about self giving. Self giving, self giving, self giving, self giving. I never really heard about the times that Jesus went away early in the morning by himself or spent the night on a hillside or got on a, you know, sent the disciples away on a boat while he stayed on the shore. We didn't really talk about those things. It was just all about giving. To be a Christian, you must sacrifice. And then throughout my entire life, there was always this backdrop of this thing called original sin. This idea that Adam and Eve ate fruit from this tree and it cataclysmically changed the world and depraved every human being. And so I couldn't possibly trust myself. I couldn't trust my knowing because at the deepest, most pervasive part of myself was this human rot connected to Adam and Eve's original sin. And so I have felt a lot of fear in my life. I felt a lot of shame in my life. I felt a lot of duty in my life. I felt a lot of sacrifice in my life. I felt a lot of guilt in my life. And I've been motivated by shame and fear and duty and sacrifice and guilt. And because those experiences and those moments of trauma sit so deep inside of my soul, at times I transmit all of these things. I transmit my fear. I transmit my shame. I transmit my duty. I transmit my sacrifice. I transmit my guilt in relationship with others. Now, to be clear as possible, I'm not trying to bash on my parents. Uh, My parents loved me with their whole hearts. They did their very best raising me and continuing in my attempt to be as clear as possible i'm not trying to cause any parent in this room to feel bad about their parenting or moments when things like guilt or duty or shame or sacrifice have have come up and have motivated you in the way that you might parent your children especially in those moments when everything is starting to feel kind of out of control Rather, I've shared these stories with the hope that they rouse some stories inside of you, like childhood stories, like becoming a young adult kind of story, like those formative moments when something happened and it it kind of changed something inside of you. Those kinds of stories are what I'm grasping for this morning. Because that's where we have to begin. Before we look out, we have to look in. Before we figure out why we're relating to people in certain ways, we have to figure out how it is that we're relating to ourselves. We have to begin here. In Bessel van der Kolk's classic work, The Body Keeps the Score, van der Kolk explains how pain, suffering, and trauma are held in our bodies and actually alter our brains long after our difficult experiences. According to Vander Kolk, not only do those experiences compromise our capacity for things like pleasure, intimacy, and trust, but the feelings that these experiences roused, like those moments where you felt shame or guilt or fear, etc., these feelings can become mediums through which we live our lives. In other words, we humans have a tendency to transmit our pain through the feelings that we experienced when we were harmed. It's ironic, but it's human. And so do you have a painful story about guilt? Like as you look back over your life, especially your childhood, do you have some stories about guilt? Well, it's possible that you may then transmit guilt, especially in moments that feel out of control for you. Or perhaps you have a painful story about shame It's possible, even likely, that you may transmit that shame, especially in moments that feel out of control to you. Isn't that interesting? Now, the good news is that the science makes it clear that our bodies can heal. And the good news is that the neural wiring in our brains can be reconfigured. Like that which has been traumatized and shaped by trauma, that can actually be reworked. Our neural wiring is, is plastic. It can, it can shift and move and heal and change. But here's the thing, it takes time. It takes time. It may even take therapeutic uh, experiences going to therapy, seeing, seeing a therapist, getting some help. And near the end of Vander Kolk's book, Among Other Mechanisms for Healing, he writes about the power of language and relationships, stories and tables. He writes about the power of stories and tables to liberate and to heal our lives. At Pearl, we believe that our sacred story and common table have the ability to, over time, Animate, which is to say, motivate our lives. Not through shame, guilt, duty, sacrifice, or fear, but by love. By love. Language in relationships are that powerful. They are that powerful. With one caveat, which is our language in our relationships, or to use Pearl's wording, our stories and tables must be truly good. They must be. They must be truly good. They must be deeply loving in order to overcome the trauma and pain that has shaped our body and our neural wiring. We've taken the last two weeks to talk about our story and table, but I'd like to highlight a couple particular aspects of our story and table that are really important, about our story. In Genesis chapter one, verse 27, we read these beautiful words. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Then, And so according to our sacred story, we humans bear God's image. Just let that sink in for a moment. We humans bear the image of the divine. And in our reading from the New Testament this morning, we heard from 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, that God is love. God is love, and we humans bear the image of God. I'd like to say that again. God is love, and we humans bear the image of God. In other words, according to our sacred story, somehow, somewhere deep down, like deep, deep down in our purest, truest places is the divine image of infinite love. Infinite love baked into human existence at our deepest places. Now, if you grew up in the church, you may be asking, well, what about original sin? Right? That's something that I've talked about a fair amount over the years here at Pearl. In short, the theology of original sin is violent. It doesn't make biological or biblical or spiritual sense. The notion of original sin was birthed out of dominion ideology that has been used for millennia to manipulate and to control humans through guilt. Oh, it's powerful. You can get humans to do a lot of things if they feel guilty. You can get kids to behave if you make them feel guilty. Original sin, as part of our sacred story, must, it must cease to mark Christian thought. Prior to the notion of original sin, Judaism and our church fathers understood Adam and Eve's sin not as an act that cataclysmically altered the world and depraved every human being. Rather, through Adam and Eve, we see the human propensity to attempt perfection now, always now, perfect knowledge now. And yet, as Genesis 3 makes clear, it takes a lifetime for humans to grow good. And, as the Bible makes clear, it takes millennia for humankind to grow good. And that's something else that I appreciate about our sacred story, which is trajectory. In the Bible, we see a slow, messy, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back progression. But we do see a progression from law to love, from obedience to grace, from from differences to similarities, and from chaos to ultimately, at the end of the story, shalom. We are individually and as a species slowly growing up into the knowledge of God, which is love. And it is magnetically pulling us forward because, as we've already seen, we humans bear the image of God in here deep down inside of us, which is love. Oh, but life, right? Life. Wounds and trauma and pain, our human experiences east of Eden causes the glory of love to fade inside of every person. But it's there. It's there inside every person calling and whispering, come home, wake up, let that which is truly you, love, let love rule. Let love move you. Let it motivate your life as a human in this world. So that's a bit on our sacred story. And then, as Ben spoke about so well last week, there's our common table. By common table, to be so clear, we don't intend ordinary. It's an ordinary table. Uh, What we mean by ordinary or common is for all. For all. For everyone. And that, you see, the notion of an open table for all, that is radical. According to evolutionary psychology, one of our deepest and most pervasive needs as human beings is attachment. That's what we all need. We need attachment. Connection, community, belonging, attachment. Unfortunately, attachment is imperfectly experienced in our lives. It's usually communicated like, well, if you behave this way, then you can be attached, right? Like you can belong. Or if you believe these things, then you can be attached. You can Belong, And to be clear, this isn't just church. I mean, this is life in the world. The other day, there was an article in the Oregonian titled Hoover Gang Violence. Anybody read that article? Hoover Gang Violence. It was about one of the most violent gangs in Portland, and a line from the article read, The Hoover members who testified said they were drawn to the gang, often influenced by older family members or friends. attachment." Some said it filled a void in their lives. Belonging. Belonging, connection, attachment, if. If you behave in these ways, if you believe these things. But here's the thing, attachment if, belonging if, it doesn't actually lead to human flourishing. And it doesn't matter what kind of community it is, uh, be it a family, or a church, or a gang, or the, you know, the neighborhood book club, our problem of attachments cannot be fixed using that which created the problems. Problems can't be fixed that way. The problem is that belief or behavior modification must happen in order to belong. That is a problem in any kind of group that says, you can attach here. You can be a part of this here. You see, what we need is a table that declares to every person, despite belief and behavior, you are welcome here. That's what we need. In fact, do you see this bread and wine that you're about to eat and drink? This is the body of God broken open and poured out for you always. Despite all of the terrible things you might think about yourself because of the trauma and wounds that you've experienced as a child, despite all of those things, this table exists. It is always open, and it is always giving. At Pearl, we believe that the stories and tables can animate our lives by love if the stories and tables are truly good. I suppose another way to say it could be, we believe that stories and tables can animate our lives by love if the stories and tables are truly loving. Which brings us to, well, what exactly is love? You know, what is love? This question reminds me of Robert Persig's book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Anybody read that book? In which he attempts to define this ambiguous thing called quality, right? We all want a quality job. We all want a quality friend. We all want a quality meal. Persig explains, quality moves us all, but but what exactly is quality? Like like, how do you articulate that thing that satisfies our souls? Similarly, what exactly is love? I love my partner. I love my dog. I love toaster waffles. What is love? Well, if you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard these words from 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, if you're anything like me and you like checklists, like you go to the grocery store and you actually get something that's not on the list and you write it on the list just so you can check it off, right? Anybody like that? <laughs> right. Well, for me then it's like patient, okay, check. Good good loving day today. Kind check. Good kind day today. Not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Check. I was loving today. But you see, I don't think that's the point. In fact, that just becomes another uh, medium for shame and guilt when we don't accomplish that which we think we have to accomplish in order to belong and attach to the divine and the divine community of God. Rather, I understand Paul's passage here to read like a vision statement for the kind of people that we are to become slowly over time as we are cultivated by sacred stories and common tables that are truly good. In other words, these, these qualities aren't behaviors to accomplish. Rather, they're signposts that mark our movement forward toward God, who is love. I'd like to conclude this morning with a loving mindfulness practice. And so if you're comfortable, will you please close your eyes for a moment? Now, take a moment to visualize in your mind a person that you really care about. Maybe it's a dear friend. Maybe it's a partner. Perhaps it's a child a little one, maybe a grown one, but it's somebody that you really love. Can you see them? Just see that person. Now, as you're seeing them, imagine for a moment that they're making some life choices that are concerning. Like they're, they're doing something or they're about to do something that makes you feel really afraid. Like you're just really afraid. Maybe it's your child and they, they still haven't gotten, that they need to look both ways before they cross the road. Maybe it's your adult child entering into a relationship that you just feel really, really worried about. How does your heart feel? For me, in those moments, my heart feels pretty constricted. My mind is whirling so fast. And you see, fear does that. And if we relate to our person whom we love so much from that place then we end up relating to them from places of fear in fact we, we quite potentially transmit our fear to our person as a way that we're trying to help them maybe control them but that fear gets passed along it's very tempting to live out of, to act out of that place but feel yourself there Now, in the midst of that fear, let's all just take a moment to to take a couple deep breaths. Just take a couple deep, deep breaths. Now, take a few moments to think about everything you love about that person. Everything you love about your child. Everything you love about your friend. Yes, of course you're worried about them, but Truly looming larger than your fear, if you take the time to move there, is your love. And even though you're afraid for them, when you are grounded in your love, you can actually feel your heart expanding a little bit. You can feel your mind slowing down as you remember all that you love about this person and all that you hope for their life. And yes, of course, you may still need to talk to them about your concerns, but your talk can be grounded in love. You can actually, in love, transmit love in the midst of concern if the concern isn't baked in fear that we ourselves knew as children. And that ends up being a very different kind of conversation. Okay, thanks for doing that with me. The same can be true for love, not shame. Love not guilt, love not duty, love not sacrifice. Oh, and so when we notice, right, all of a sudden we're afraid or, or we're mad or, or we feel like we're going to shame somebody, right, that's really about us. This is touching on some things inside of us. And moments when those things are aroused, it's an invitation from the divine for us to go deep inside of ourselves to that, that truer place that place of love. And you see, we humans are capable of this loving mindfulness practice with people that we might even call enemies. Like, they might vote different or believe different. Their Jesus might even be tragically different. And all of a sudden, you can already feel yourself, can't you? A little angsty. But if we take the time to move down the ladder of abstraction, that's a, that's a rhetorical idea that, that, that there's, this, there's this way in which we're different, but we're all actually very similar. So like at the top, we might all be different, right? Republican, Democrat, conservative, progressive. And we often live our lives at the top of that ladder of abstraction, and we abstract into fragmented pieces of different kinds of people. But, but if, we're, if we take the time to move down that ladder, adult, I'm an adult. That person is somebody's child. I'm somebody's child. That person has wounds and trauma and pain. I have wounds and trauma and pain. That person longs for attachment, and is maybe finding attachment in the wrong kinds of places, with the wrong kinds of stories and the wrong kinds of tables. I've been there too. and suddenly our hearts are expanding and our minds are slowing down as we more fully realize every person's need for love. And you know why this is possible? Why we are capable of empathy and understanding even for those we may consider to be our enemies? It's possible because the weight of divine love marks every person's soul. It's in us. It's because the weight of divine love marks every person's soul, even though wounds and trauma and pain can bury it deep, deep, so tragically deep. But the Spirit of Christ is always calling, as we read in Ephesians 5, verse 14, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead. May it be so, and let us pray. Divine love, heal our wounds. Renew our minds and animate our lives. Not by the shame and guilt and fear and duty and sacrifice that have so harmed our bodies and reworked our neural working brains, but, but through tables and stories of love move us more closely to your heart and that which is truly deepest in our own hearts, which is infinite love. And may that love make all things new, even our own lives.
0: We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.